it is amazing how one or two little things can change everything. For example, I, I think this has probably happened to a few people out there before. You know, uh, Ruth, the awesome Ruth Steve, my wife, uh, will say, uh, I'll say, hey, I'm looking for the mustard or the milk in, in the fridge. And she says, it's right there in the front, right? And I open up the refrigerator and I'm looking in there and I can't find it. It's nowhere to be found. Has this ever happened to you? It's like, the milk is nowhere to be found, right? And then Ruth comes over and without looking, grabs it, reading a book or whatever, hands it to me and walks back and doing her thing. I mean, it's so different. And I, think, I don't think I'm the only person that has that experience, okay? So, um, so, so little things can change everything, just a different person. Um, also, words can change everything. Came across this cartoon a while back, and here, check it out. Uh, this guy's out on this, uh, this uh, the land, uh, deserted island, and he yells, boat! And the other guy sees him in the boat and says, land. And here's the whole thing. It's the different ways that we perceive it. It changes everything. You know, boat, land, which perspective do you have here? And that's what I want to talk about today to, to all of us. Is it's one or two little words that we're going to learn today can change everything in the way that we view our lives. So I'm going to take you to those two words in just a moment. And it's about changing our perspective. And first, I want to talk about what the changing our perspective on what the book of Revelation is all about as we continue this series in the last book of the Bible. And secondly, I want to talk us, to us about how we change the way we, our own view of life, our purpose, our happiness, our contentment, our joy, our, our, our uh, view of the future, our contentment, all these things. Two words that can change everything. So if you got these at, here or you're watching, um, uh, grab your Acts, uh, excuse me, Revelation Scripture Journal. And uh, if you go, just review what we talked about last week. Here, here we go. Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. And we talked about last week the power of anticipation and looking forward to go what God has planned for us. That's, that's what we talked about. And guys, um, that word blessed, uh, this, this, this book of the Bible is given to us to be a blessing to us. And so I want to start with that and then take it from there to the next little passage of scripture that tells us about what we need to look forward to. And, and we're getting into Revelation now, so now you're thinking, okay, now what do you think of the book of Revelation? And what words come to mind? Typically in culture, it's doom, it's gloom, it's death or destruction, it's fire and brimstone. Those are the words that we put together. So how do we start? How does he begin this? Uh, we go to verse four and we get some unexpected words from John as he gives them to the churches and to us. He says, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you. Those are two words I want to look at today. 
Because for most people, the way they look at the book of Revelation or they've heard it taught before, those two words aren't the first ones that come to mind, but they were the first ones that came to John's mind. He wants to communicate grace to us and he wants to communicate peace to us. Stop right there. Is that how, I hope that you're getting jazzed up about this series. And if you didn't have a chance to view the first uh, message, I, this is one that I really would ask you, go back and watch the message and take part in it because it's, it really sets the tone for the whole book. I had a friend of mine leave a, um, a voice message on my phone this week. And he said, I, Quentin, I haven't been this excited since I was a kid on Christmas Eve so excited about what God is doing in his life and the lives of other people around him. And I'm excited for that. So, um, so grace and peace, that's what we're gonna talk about today. And you know what? I think every single person here wants grace. We wanna experience acceptance. We wanna experience love and kindness. We don't wanna experience maybe what we deserve, but maybe in spite of our sins and our mistakes and our fallings and failures, what we don't deserve. That's what grace is. And then we want peace. We would love to experience some serenity, some uh, harmony in the midst of the chaos. Uh, there's so much polarization. There's so many crazy stuff happening in the world. We would love to experience some peace. Uh, the end of conflict, the unity of friendship and love, the unity of real community where people care about each other and there's peace within. And John begins the book of Revelation by greeting the people there. And the first two words he wants to tell them is grace and peace. Those two words. Oh, guys, this is going to be good. Grace and peace, though, are only as good as their source. You want grace. I want grace. All God's people want grace. But they're only as good as their source. It, it, where does this grace come from? It's like a friend of mine we're talking to him t uh, today, actually. He was saying... Um, you know, I, I went to this restaurant and the food was okay. And then somebody told me, wait a minute, they're getting different ingredients from a different place and they're doing it themselves and it's much fresher and better. And they said, it's, it's amazing now. So the source of where it comes from determines the quality of the grace and the quality of the peace. And a lot of people are looking for grace and kindness and love and acceptance and looking for peace and harmony and goodness and, 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 and serenity in, in the conflict. But maybe they're not looking for it in the right source. And so the Apostle John is gonna unpack for us where this grace is coming from. And I wanna to get to that in just a minute because this grace and peace comes from God himself, the very best source. And God, he meets us, here's the first principle, right where we are, right where you are. So. First, let's talk about geography. He's, he says to the seven churches in Asia, where in the world is that? So let's start. Uh, we're going to go Google mapping it here. Okay. So we start and we're going to zoom in on where we are right now. And that is Des Moines metro area. And actually right here at Valley Church. Not, that's where we are. Where did this take place? Let's take it on the globe. Let's spin it around and let's go over across the ocean to the Mediterranean Sea. Here we are. You can see this is Italy here. This is Greece. 
and this is a little island in the middle of, of the Mediterranean Sea called Patmos. Go in a little closer and you're going to come to what Asia, we think of, you know, Asian countries. It, it wasn't the Asia we think of. It was actually, uh, it is actually modern Turkey, Asia Minor. So zoom in here and you can come here to where these churches were located. They were all, here's Patmos, here's Italy and Greece over here. And then they're all located in this area. So that's kind of where it is in the world that he's writing to. And then we go back to where we came from. And that is, of course, Valley Church. So glad God meets us right where in real life, in a real world, that Revelation is written to real churches and it's written for us as well. But let's go back to the map for just a minute. Um, we're, we're going to this Patmos, which is in the middle of the Mediterranean, Italy and Greece over here. And then look at the cities where these are. These are, these are the seven uh, churches that he's writing to, and they follow actually just a trade route. So trade route. So the order of the cities in the book of Revelation, uh, when we get to in chapter two and three, they're just the order of a very common trade route. It's like an I-80 and 35. So if it were in Iowa, let's go look at here. It, it, how long is that route uh, back in Asia Minor? 256 miles. So if it were here in Iowa, it would be like starting here at Valley Church, heading up to Ankeny, then to the church at Ames, then to Marshalltown, uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa City, and then back to Williamsburg. That's almost exactly the same distance. So these were tightly together, and that's what he's writing to in the real world. But it's not just meeting us where we are in ge geographically. It's meeting where we are personally, emotionally, spiritually, right where you are today. I don't know what you've gone through, Maybe the best time of your life, maybe a struggle time. But he meets you right where you are, just like these churches. He wrote to seven churches. And we're going to learn in chapters two and three that these were real people. Some of them were doing great spiritually and some of them were dragging and feeling struggles and they were, they were having a hard time. They felt the pressure of their culture. Some of them were not doing well spiritually. They were compromising left and right. They were, they were going along with what the culture was telling them, uh, their values, their ethics, their beliefs, and they had compromised their faith. And the beauty that I love in this passage is that God knows all about all those people in all those churches and about me and you. And he still says to them, grace and peace to you. He knows all about our struggles. He knows all about our shortcomings. And he still says to you, Grace, grace to you and peace to you. Where are you today? Where do you fit in? How are you doing? No matter what the answer to that question is, God meets you right where you are. Isn't that incredibly encouraging? I hope it is to you today. No matter what's happened in your life, God meets you right where you are today. Let's keep going. He says, grace and peace to you from the one who is, where's this grace coming from? Because that's the source the one who was, and the one who is to come. Okay, quick. Moses, way back in the Old Testament times, uh, God is revealing himself to Moses, and he appears to him in a burning bush. And he says, I'm going to have you lead my people out of their bondage, out of their slavery, and you're going to be the one to, del to deliver my people. And Moses is like, ah, he's freaking out. And he, he, I can't do this. And he has all these excuses. God says, I'm going to use you. And then he says uh, in, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? 
What should I tell them? It's not just a name, like the title or a name or a personal name. It is that. But is, what's his name? Who is he? Who is he really? And God replies to Moses, I am who I am. It's the personal name of God. Yahweh. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This was a personal name of God. And it, 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 it told them, and, and we go back to this, this passage here, this message is from who is, he is, I am. Who was, he's existed from all eternity. He's our creator. He's always been, he's unchangeable. And then it says, the one who is to come. And that's not just that he will exist in the future, though it is that, he will always exist. But that he's coming. That God's going to show up in your life and mine. And ultimately he's coming again as he sends Jesus. He's coming to the rescue. So this grace and peace is from someone who is our God, who has existed from all eternity, who made us, who wired us, who designed this world and has it covered, who's existed far beyond all the things that are happening and far up be, uh, ahead of all the things that are happening yesterday, today, and forever. Who was? He knows. He knows what has gone down and who is to come. So he's unchangeable. He's eternal. He's coming to the rescue. He's right where he is. He was. He is to come to our rescue. So that's God the Father, God in his wholeness, God the Father. Then John says, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, seven spirits. Some of you are thinking, is this like twilight zone, some kind of weird, you know, weird spirits spinning around or something? What, what is seven spirits all about? I knew Revelation was going to get weird. And here we are. We're a few verses into it. Now it's talking about seven spirits before the throne. What in the world is that about? But I want to bring it back to how we are unfamiliar with these images, some of them because of the cultural differences, differences that from 2,000 years ago, and also because of some of our lack of familiarity with those Old Testament times and even Old Testament scriptures. So go back to the uh, Geico commercial, the gunfight. Remember that? You and me, partner. We meet center of town high noon. See, you knew those were instantly recognizable. You knew it was the Old West. You knew the tumbleweed. You knew the na-na-na. You knew all the music. You understood what it was about because you live in this culture and you have reference points to that. Well, they lived 2,000 years ago in that culture, steeped in the Old Testament background, and they understood all these images. So when he says seven spirits before the throne, they're not freaking out. They're not like, what is this weirdness? They're just like, okay, we get it. Why? Because they knew, first off, seven. It's a, it's a number that in the ancient world and in the scriptures is a, is a number of fullness or completeness or perfection or total. It's like totally the spirit. Seven spirits. And the seven spirits actually refer, it could be angelic beings, but far more likely that it's referring to the Holy Spirit. And here's why I say that. So 
take a look at this. We're going to talk about lampstands a lot. They're coming in chapter two and three. But the lampstand, the, the priest would light the lampstand in the temple, and that signified the presence of the living God. And it was a symbol of the people of God as well. So he lit these. And so that lampstand imagery with the seven candles is extremely familiar in the menorah, all right? So they get that. And in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, he has this unusual vision that they're all familiar with. And in Zechariah chapter four, he says, he has this picture of this, this golden lampstand and it's being fueled in some way, continuously fueled. You don't have to relight the lamps. They just keep burning. Why? How? How can they keep burning? And there's these, these oils, uh, oil lamps that are feeding into the main lamp. And he says, what in the world is that about? And he says, he says these words, which are unforgettable. He says, what's the meaning of this? The meaning is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, it's not human ingenuity or human wisdom that brings the presence of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God by my spirit. Anything we accomplish, anything that God does by his spirit. And so, yes, these were lit by a human person, but the reality that it symbolized was the Holy Spirit continually present. Now, where do you get the number seven spirits? Why not just say the Holy Spirit? Well, glad you asked, because again, they were familiar with these things. They instantly thought of, oh, he's talking about Isaiah. He's talking about Isaiah. There's a prophecy of the Messiah, and God says, I'm gonna send a, 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 a ruler, a savior from the house of David, and this branch is gonna come, and I'm gonna put my spirit upon him. He's gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus references this. Isaiah says it this way. When, when the Messiah comes, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The spirit of God is gonna be so much at work in the person of Jesus, it's gonna be unmistakable that he's the Messiah. So where do you get seven? So glad you asked. Let's count the spirit of the Lord one, two wisdom, three understanding, four counsel, five strength, six knowledge, seven fear the Lord. You got it right there. It's the sevenfold spirit. In fact, some translations even, uh, even translate it that way. It's all these things, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, life, completeness. Wouldn't you like to have, he's saying, this, this grace and peace comes to him for you from the Holy Spirit who will rest upon Jesus and also rest upon us, lives within us, giving us a spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord, respect for God. So that's where this grace and peace is coming from, the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on, he, he names the third person of the Trinity. So he has the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, verse five and from Jesus Christ. And then he describes them this way, the faithful witness, he is the truth, and he always told the truth no matter what the cost. The word witness also can be translated later, martyr. So he is the ultimate one who gave his life for us. The firstborn from the dead. This refers back to Psalm 89. You can look it up on your own, verse 37. But it's this, uh, the firstborn who is the place, takes the place of kingship, who rules over everything. And he's referring to his resurrection from the dead. He's not a firstborn being, like at one point he was born in eternity, but that he's always been. But when he came to earth, he was resurrected from the dead, the first one. And so now he's leading a whole family of people who are gonna be raised from the dead. 
That's me and you. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if you come to place your faith in him, you also will be raised from the dead. But Jesus was the first to be raised and never to die again. And then he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And they're looking around and saying, wow, that is so encouraging because we have been put down. We have been pressured by our culture. And I just want to read from you. Actually, I'm making this available. If you want to pick this up, we, we are uh, for purchase um, here at, at Valley Church. Just a commentary. Um, you, 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 it helps you to read through this. If you'd like to, you can pick it up at Valley Church. But I just want to read what uh, the author here, George Eldon Ladd, said about, um, about this ruler of the kings of the earth. Just to give you a flavor. He says, here's one of the central affirmations of the whole New Testament, which apparently is contradicted by our real life experience, hard experience, but which every Christian confesses to be true. Outwardly, it appeared back then that Rome ruled without rival, with sovereign power. Human, uh, human history through the centuries can be interpreted as the class of nations and the rule of the strongest. It has not been, nor is it now true, that good has always triumphed and that right has always won the day. But beyond the chaotic events of history, the believer recognizes that Jesus Christ, who chose the way of obedience and humiliation, has in fact been exalted to God's right hand, where he sits as Lord, ruling over the rulers of the earth. His second coming, from one point of view, is to be understood in making known to the whole world the sovereignty which already he has. So guys, he's the ruler. And when we see crazy stuff happen in our world, this means a lot to you. When you're a believer in a church basement, with 150 people crowded in for trying to save their lives, and some evil maniac in another nation is bombing you relentlessly and indiscriminately, killing innocents, and you're a believer in Jesus, to know that there is a ruler of the kings of the earth who will set all things right, who is there, and that in spite of the chaos, he still rules and reigns. I've, I, I've talked to people who've been under persecution like that, and this sort of statement of who Jesus is fills them with what? With grace and peace. Peace that the world can't understand. Yes, they're scared. Yes, they're uh, praying for their lives. Yes, they're concerned about their family. But there's a peace that comes over them that they can't explain. And it's from Jesus, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So we've had Father, we've had Son, and we've had Holy Spirit. That's where the grace and peace comes. Second principle is this. Our triune God, the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is more astounding and more inspiring than you can imagine. I don't know how to say this, but I think so many times we so underestimate who God is. And how great he is. And we don't access him. We don't talk with him. We don't give him everything that we have in our lives. We don't trust him for all of his many promises. And if we do that, we're missing out. If we don't do that, we're missing out on the grace and peace that could be ours. Because he is astounding. He is amazing. Do you see all the, the, the ways that he has been described in these just for first few verses? Who is and who was and is to come and the sevenfold spirit and Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead and the faithful witness, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's got you. And when we really recognize how astounding 
and inspiring this is and God is. It gives us a grace and peace that we can't explain otherwise. I've experienced it myself. And today he is offering you that kind of grace and peace as you look to him and trust in him. Guys, um, there's a guy by the name of Marcus Person. All right, here he is. And um, I was reading a book by Scott Sauls and um, he's a wonderful Christian author. Uh, and he, he writes these words. In 2015, Business Insider Magazine published an article about Marcus Person, the creator of the wildly successful video game Minecraft, all right? Uh, Person sold his company for $2.5 billion, establishing him as one of the richest, most successful entrepreneurs in our time. Following the sale, he purchased a mansion for $70 million and spent his days living the dream with lavish parties, high-end vacations, world travel, and frequent hobnobbing with the well-known celebrities. At the peak of his success, the world by the tail, when he seemed to be one of the world's most happy and secure human beings, Marcus Person shared the following kind of Ecclesiastes-like reflections on his Twitter page. Quote, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. Hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I have never felt more isolated. And that wasn't the end of it. It went on for some time uh, where he was just lamenting and looking around and is this all that life is? And it was just quite a moment of transparency, which I admire, by the way. But I also want to say we could all get there. We could all put our hope for grace and peace in other stuff that doesn't deliver. We keep thinking, if this situation changes, or this person will just come around, or if this, hey, then I'll finally experience grace and peace. Or we're looking for other things, stuff, or situations, or circumstances, or whatever, to deliver us grace and peace. And God gives us many blessings. But you have to look where those blessings are coming from. What hand are they coming from? They're coming from the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And ultimately, He's the one. He's the one that we look to for ultimate grace, acceptance, compassion, forgiveness, all those things, and peace. Peace with him through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and peace with one another, and peace within. We're looking at all these other places. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author of, of a century ago, uh, wrote this, these words. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. God has put these longings within us and ultimately they're only satisfied when we connect with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I'm just telling you, that's where grace and peace are. They're in a relationship with God. Look there first. It's not bad to experience blessings elsewhere, but you're always going to come up short when they're not trying to find it in the triune God of the scriptures. But he doesn't stop there. There's more grace and peace for us. He says the grace and peace to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. He's honoring Jesus as he says this, but he's 
recognizing Jesus loves us. Here's the third principle, just simple, simple truth. Jesus loves you and sets you free. When you trust in him, he, he, he sets you free. So uh, years ago, they asked a very famous theologian by the name of Karl Barth, a German theologian, what is the most profound thought you have ever had in your life? And this guy is super intellectual, amazing mind, amazing insights. What's the most profound thought you have ever had in your life? He said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. He got it. He understood that the love of Jesus is the most profound thing. He loves us. And he's shown the ultimate extent of his love by setting us free through his blood. Now, John borrows from the language of Exodus and, of course, the rest of the New Testament. But you remember the Lamb of God in the, in the Exodus times. So he's borrowing again from the Old Testament. When God said, slay the innocent lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the door posts of your home and the door frames of your home. And when the angel of death comes over in a judgment for sin and rebellion, that angel will pass over you because he will see the blood of the lamb. That, that was an image and a picture, but pointed forward to Jesus who through his blood on the cross, passes over us. We don't have to experience his judgment. We don't have to experience uh, everlasting death, but instead we can experience freedom. And then the freedom of Exodus, when God led his people out of slavery and bondage, which is a picture of sin, into the newness of life and into a promised land. These are all things that John is, is just pouring into and saying to you and to us, he sets you free and he's got so much grace and peace for you, more than you can imagine. He loves you. And he wants you to experience a life of freedom. Do you know today that you are loved? Do you know today that you are free through Jesus? I hope that you will take this to heart. And he loves us right where we are. And he loves us, and me, you and me, enough to not let us stay where we are. So grace not only saves us from something, death and hell, but saves us for something. Verse 6, and he made us a kingdom. A kingdom for God isn't boundaries, it isn't lines on a map, it isn't a domain that he just kind of, territory he governs, but rather it's his people. We're, we're his whole people and he's made us that now. He says, you're a part of, of, of my family and he reigns and we're, we're the kingdom now, we're a part of that kingdom. And then he even adds, we're priests to his God and Father. So God actually has for believers in Jesus a new role to play. A priest isn't somebody uh, who has a you know, clergy or some kind of special role, but every single believer is a priest. We, we've said for centuries, the emphasis on the priesthood of all believers. What does that mean? That every one of us can approach God and know him face to face. That every one of us can actually offer spiritual sacrifices to God with our lives, a living sacrifice to him, that we can do something meaningful in our lives that way. Priests also prayed for other people. They represented God in the world. We're called to that. We're to represent our uh, uh, God in this world with our neighbors and friends and families and coworkers. We're to speak forth the message of reconciliation. That's what a priest does. He, he, he ministers and he, he shows this uh, mediation that happened between Jesus Christ 
and God that brings us together. And we have an opportunity to share that good news with others. And we offer up our lives as living sacrifices. Guys, there's so much here. Um, and I want to invite you also, if, you, uh, if you'd like to dig more into the book of Revelation, we're going to be offering um, uh, from time to time some gatherings on Monday nights in the chapel calling Digging Deeper. The first one is going to be actually on Monday, March 28th at 6.30 p.m. And if you'd like to dig deeper into this and, and, and learn more about how this all fits together, please come and join us uh, on Monday night. Uh, and then, then we get to the kind of the climactic point of, 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 of today. And that is, uh, Jesus calls us to the greatest and most glorious cause. That's being nice kingdom and priest. But then we come to verse seven. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. This is referring, of course, to his glorious return. And there's coming a day, he's telling every believer of every generation, he is coming, he is coming again with the clouds and every eye will see him. What, what are we talking about? Clouds, every eye will see him. This refers back to Daniel, the prophet Daniel. And he was prophesying about this incredible figure that was come at the end of days. And he said this in Daniel 7, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man a ruler, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, his father, and was escorted before him. There's this Messiah, this, this one who will come, who's, who's this fully human, fully divine one, who will come with the clouds of heaven, referring forward to this, this end time, this, this glorious second coming. In the book of Acts, it says the same thing. Jesus was raised, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. And after he ascended into heaven, they're all looking up there in the clouds as he's going from them. And it says, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing into heaven, Acts 1. And suddenly two men in white clothes, angels, stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. He's coming back. I hope that stokes you guys because it's not going to be just forever like this. God is going to wrap up human history. He's going to right the wrongs that have been done. He's going to come in glory. He's going to come and, and, and with justice set everything right. And he's also going to give everlasting life to his people. And, and, and he's going to have a new heavens and a new earth, a renewal of all things. This is, we have such a glorious future to look forward to. The, the book of Revelation is about the rest of this and that's in weeks to come. And it says, every eye will see him. If this is going to be something that only a few people notice, I mean, this is a glorious coming. Uh, and, and on that day of his second coming, every single person on the face of the earth and all the dead included will be able to see him. And then he says, even those who pierced him, referring back to Zechariah. Again, we aren't familiar with these. They're very familiar. Pierced him. Zechariah, he says, and I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer. These are in the end days. On the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they have pierced. I believe this is, and we'll get more to this in the book, rest of the book. There's coming a day where there will be an incredible a moment 
when people will, as they see Jesus, there, there'll be people that stream to know him. Even in those, in those last days, I believe from his own people, the people of Israel will come in large numbers to saving faith in Jesus. But then he expands it beyond that. And they aren't the only ones who pierced him. The Romans, but really all of us. We're all there. Uh, Martin Luther said, we carry around in our pockets the nails in his cross. We all were responsible to sending him to the cross for our sins. And it says that all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Everybody, all the different ones from every tribe, from all over the earth, they're going to mourn for him. Now, who is this mourning? I think it is not just the, 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 the people of Israel, but the people of all nations. And what are they mourning about? And, and there's three possibilities, and I don't want to be real, you know, major on the majors, but if I were to say, you know, it could be a mourning of repentance leading to life and forgiveness. And I, I believe that in those last days before his coming, there are going to be those people who recognize who Jesus really is, and they're going to turn to him and come to faith in him. And that's going to be amazing. And that's for our day as well. There's people going to mourn in repentance and say, I, I trust in Jesus. I want him to forgive me of my sins. There's also, I think, a mourning uh, of people that for them, they've rejected him. And on that last day, it'll be a mourning of regret because they have let pass the opportunity to turn. And for them, they have, they, they have nothing but, but lostness to look forward to. And so they're mourning this deep wailing of regret. But I also think there's a mourning of reunion. When you haven't seen someone that you love for a really long time, and then you see them, oftentimes we have these tears that come, and there's this, there's this almost mourning of the, the, the separation that has been there but now isn't anymore. I don't know which of these three that are, but I think there's enough scriptures to indicate that it could be a blend of all three of them. And there is a coming a day when we will see Jesus. And I know he says he will wipe away every tear from our eye, but that indicates that there are going to be tears, you know? And I think that might be when the day returns, we're just so overcome. And finally, we're home. Finally, we're with him. And to all believers throughout the generations, this has been an incredible comfort. And that's why John says, so it is to be, amen. This is real life, guys. It's true. We believe it. Jesus is coming back. So the principle number five is Jesus coming. He is coming again in spectacular glory. That's what we have to look forward to. And he will break hearts for good. Some for eternity, in that sense for good. For others, um, it, it's for good. It's like for all eternity, their hearts are going to be broken, but for others it will be for good that God brings them to himself before that last day. And that's what we long for. That's what we pray for. For 2,000 years, the expectation of Jesus coming again has been the blessed hope of the church. I hope that this promise of his coming fills your mind and heart with a new sense of expectation. So easy to forget that Jesus is coming back, but he is. And we pray and, and share and witness and live our lives and love people so that they too will come to repentance before that day when for them it will be too late. We want that our lives to be such that we are living it out so they have plenty of opportunities to embrace Jesus. 
And then finally, he finishes off with a flourish. I am the Alpha and the Omega, which for the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet is like, I'm the A to the Z. I got it all covered. I got everything. I have everything. I own everything. I know everything. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, which incidentally the emperor Domitian, who was likely ruling at this time, he had now gone one step further. Some of the emperors had said, I want to be referred to as deity. He actually says, just call me Lord God. So this brings to mind, he says, there's, there's only one Lord God, and it's not the emperor. It's not the rulers of the earth. It's the ruler of heaven and earth, the Lord God. The one who is, who was, is to come, just circling back where he started, the Almighty, or could be translated the All-Ruler. He's got it all. Last principle. The Lord is everything you will ever need. Not only the Lord has everything you ever need, the Lord is everything you will ever need. It's in a relationship with Him that you find and discover everything your heart desires. Father in heaven, thank you that all of these things flow from your heart and that you gave us a couple of words today, all the things that we have shared and talked about, grace and peace. Father, I pray for someone here today who's, who's watching, who's listening, and they need grace. They just need extra strength. Maybe they need forgiveness. Maybe they need a break. Would you show your grace to them today? Through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's others longing for peace. I pray for the one who's longed for the peace of knowing you for the first time, that they'll cross that line of faith and trust in you. And then for others to experience peace with you, peace within, and peace and serenity and harmony in a world gone crazy. Will you flood your people with peace today? And all God's people agreed and said, amen and amen. God bless you all. We'll see you soon.